You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Well, this morning my message is called God's Outrageous Grace. And uh, the last few weeks, Pastor Hayward, he's been preaching through the book of Romans. And uh, we've been learning about how God is a holy God and a righteous judge. We've been learning that he is holy, he is righteous, but that he is good and that God is love. He's also full of grace, mercy, and truth, and he is a loving father. And what's amazing about the God that we serve is he is all of these things, at the exact same time. I know when I was a new Christian and, and I would begin to open up the Bible and I'd, I'd like to stay in the New Testament. It made me feel good. But w- when I would try to read the Old Testament, sometimes I wouldn't understand. I'd be reading some of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and I'd be thinking, is this the same God of the New Testament? I'd be reading about judgment and I'd be reading about about a people who would break their covenant with God, and God would send a man to come and to warn the people that it's time to repent and turn back to God because you've broken your covenant with God, and if you don't, there will be judgment. And I'd read, and I'd read, and and what I failed to see was the big picture. Have any of you ever read a scripture in the Bible I thought, that is a really, really weird scripture. You know, if you are new to the Christian faith and you begin to open the Bible and you were to just pick random scriptures and read them, outrageous is one word that it would sound, not, not in the context I'm using it here this morning. But as I begin to learn more about the word of God and learn about the history of the people of Israel and God's work in the life of man, I began to realize that there's this amazing and beautiful narrative, a story that runs through the entire Bible from Genesis through Revelation. And this is a beautiful narrative about a loving God, a holy God, a righteous God who creates everything. And he especially loves man. Man, he makes them in his own image. He creates them and is especially fond of them. And he creates them to be a reflection of his goodness, of his grace, of his love, of his attributes and his character in the world. And despite the fact that man chooses to reject God, decides to break away from from God and decides to be his own God and master of his own destiny. God chooses to pursue a people that he loves. We run away from God's provision sometimes, but he pursues us. He pursues us with his love. See, ultimately, when you look at the Old and the New Testament in this huge narrative and put it all together, there's a loving God who made a way for us to be in relationship with him. That it was his desire 
that he would have a creation, which is man, that would love him of our own free will, not that he'd have to force us to love him, because that's not true love at all, but love, a love in which we would choose to love him and he could pour his love into us and we do it willingly. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I know I'm beginning to learn and understand the love of the Father. The more and more that I myself become a father. You know, I am the father of two kids right now. We got uh, Sophia, who's two and a half, and we have Everett, who's eight months. And they're very different. But I remember when Sophia was born, and it was just like my heart opened up. It was like a whole new dimension of love was established in my life. And it's hard to explain until you've become a parent. And when you become a parent, you begin to realize the type of love that requires nothing in return. You don't love your children because of what they can do for you. You don't love your children conditionally someday. Well, there are moments. There are moments. They, they test you. But when Sophia was born, she had done nothing. She sat in my arms and Rhea had a C-section with Sophia. And so for the first hour or so, I got to take Sophia. And it was such a special moment because I got to take her, give her her first bath, clothe her, take some photos, introduce her to some of the family. And then Rhea came in, totally drugged out. Didn't know what was going on. But the second that that baby was put into her arms, she got to experience what I was experiencing, this unconditional love for this little bundle of life that had just entered the world, had done nothing, nothing of significance other than just exist. But we couldn't help but just love this little girl. And that's what the Father's heart is for us. He loves us not because of what we can do for him, but because he created us and we exist because he was birthed, we are, were birthed out of his love. Because he loves us with an everlasting love. We had Sophia. We got pregnant. Rhea got pregnant. I didn't get pregnant. I look pregnant sometimes, but it's just a facade. Don't worry. I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger in junior. I'm not the first pregnant man. Um, so we have Sophia, and Rhea gets pregnant, and we're having another child. And I remember multiple times saying to Rhea, I don't know how this is going to work. We're having another one. All of my love is in Sophia here. It's like, how does this work? Do, do I have to like cut my heart in half and give half of it to her and half of it to Everett? Like, I can't imagine loving another little bundle of joy as much as I love Sophia. People tell me that it's not the case, that you don't slice your heart and you get a piece here, a piece there, and it's so true. That Everett was born and my love wasn't fractured, that God's love entered my life in a new profound way and my heart expanded. It's kind of like, you know, the Grinch. The Grinch who stole Christmas. Do you remember that scene in the movie where his heart just keeps expanding? It's kind of like that. It's like 
God expanded my heart and my capacity to love. He added new dimensions to my heart and an ability to love like I'd never loved before. And in no way did my love for Sophia wane when I began to love Everett. And it's beautiful. And that's the Father's heart for us. This morning I called the title of this message, God's Outrageous Grace. And I use the word outrageous today as another way of saying incredible, excessive, completely extravagant, shocking. Because God's love and his grace are all those things. You know, imagine this week you need to do some shopping and you walked into Sobeys or to No Frills and you went to the baking department and you went to pick up a loaf of bread and the price tag said $76. You'd probably go, oh Lord, that is outrageously priced. And if you want to experience that, move to Venezuela. I hear it's going very well for them. Um, no, it's not. They definitely need some prayer there. They got some serious problems and people are suffering. But just as that price that was paid, that would be paid for that $76 bread seems outrageous, the price that God paid so that we could be restored back into a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father was outrageous. By every account, the beginning of John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God himself came in human flesh, in humility, humbled himself, lived a perfect life, came to where we were at, human beings in our sinful state, and he died so that we could be in relationship with the Father once again. What a beautiful, beautiful story. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 probably one of the most recognizable scriptures about God's grace is for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's a gift of God and not a result of works so that none should boast. You see, this is the definition of grace that's most widely applied to people. It's this idea of undeserved favor of God towards man. And what's amazing is the more you come and walk in relationship with God the Father, the more you understand his heart for you and, the, and his heart for the lost and his heart for people, the more we begin to understand his grace. He loves you. And he loves your brother and your sister and your neighbor and your mom and your dad. And we, he wants us all to be his children. And his love isn't fractured. You don't have any less love than anyone else. As far as God's concerned, he loves you and he wants to restore you and make you new and make you into a new person. John 1, 12 to 14 says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, 
I kind of laughed when I read this to Rita yesterday. I said, husband's will, but born of God. You can say wife's will as well. And that one, it takes two to tango. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one who is the only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's interesting when you read the Gospels and you read about the life of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't, at least where I've been reading, doesn't clearly, concisely define what grace is. You read in the epistles and you read in the New Testament, you read a lot about grace, especially by Paul. Paul loves talking about God's grace. But Jesus, he doesn't just talk about God's grace, he lives it. He is it. He is grace. He is truth. He is life. And the Gospels are filled with parables, which are stories in which Jesus lives grace out and explains what grace is to us without necessarily having to give us a clear definition. Jesus loved to use parables and stories to share about the realities of the kingdom of God. And this morning I'd like to touch on two of those and I'll close with a story that I recently came across that I feel like spoke to me about the Father's heart for us as children of God. So one such example of God's grace demonstrated through the Gospels is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. This was a story that uh, you've recently heard here from the front, but I'd like to review it again. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? The Bible here then says that they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. You see, Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life. And they didn't have really anything to call him out on. His life was exemplar, exemplary. However you say that. In other words, it was really good. He lived a really good life. So clean, in fact, that nobody could point fault. So here he is trying, trying to, he's there with a the crowd of people, and the Pharisees come to try to trap him. It says here that Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And there he kept demanding, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. I don't know why, but when I was reading this, I was just thinking about our AGM. <laughs> I'm just imagining Pastor Hayward just like 
people asking him serious questions. And him standing up and just sauntering, just drawing. Really, people are like, is he having a mental breakdown right now? Like, what is going on? Answer our question. We want to know. Maybe we need to get you a doodling pad for next year. <laughs> Works for Jesus. <laughs> he <laughs> who has never sinned, throw the first stone. And he stooped down in the dust and started to draw again. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I think it's interesting that it was beginning with the oldest, probably because they're the most wise. They probably have the biggest rap sheet of them all. And that's the truth, isn't it? Sometimes we look at some of the... the the rascals that are 18, that are really living hard and playing hard. And I know there's some of you that are in your 60s and you're like, you don't know what playing hard is. You don't even know what fun looks like in the world. I'm pointing to me, but I'm not that. I was, I was not a wild child. I was a rule keeper. I was a rule keeper. I still am, by the way. <laughs> or so I think. So they began to slip away one by one, starting with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Just Jesus, the one perfect man, God himself, the only one, the only righteous one that could judge her. And what does he do? Well, he clearly lives out John 3.17, where it says that he did not come to judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save it. Where it says this, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This here is an act of, of grace. She stood before the Son of God. Her sin bore open publicly in front of everyone. He didn't condemn her that day, but he told her to go and sin no more. Titus 2, 11 to 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace. Undeserved favor towards man. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it, like the song that we sing says, but God's grace, he offered it to us because he loves us. Not, but at the same time, he doesn't leave us there. He didn't just tell her to leave. He said, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And like it says here in Titus, his grace, his grace came to train up and re us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live 
self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, the grace of God in our life is not a license to sin. It's not an excuse to do what you know you shouldn't do, but you do it anyhow because it's by default the easy thing to do. It's not a license to sin, but it's the power of God in our lives to live righteously, to do what is right in all times, to live a godly life filled with the Spirit, upright and self-controlled. Another example of grace demonstrated through the life of Christ in the Gospels is Matthew 8, 1-4. The story says this, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, If you are willing, heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. We're going to come back to that. Jesus reached out and touched him. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this, but instead go to the priest and let him examine you, taking along the offering required by the law of Moses for those who've been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. First thing that I want to note about the scripture is that somebody that had leprosy had a severe skin disorder. It was something that a lot of these people didn't sense pain. And sometimes the Bible would use the word leprosy just mean all sorts of skin conditions. Sometimes it was the one where you had nerve damage where literally you couldn't feel and you know, you'd cut your finger with a knife and you wouldn't feel it. And slowly over time, your body would just start breaking down. People that were lepers were some of the most grotesque untouchables of society. They really were. They were people that the average person would have found repulsive. I don't know what the closest thing would be in our society, but have you ever been somewhere, like in a doctor's office or somewhere, and someone's just coughing profusely, like all over the place? Do you feel like giving that person a hug or shaking their hand when they're doing that? Usually not. Usually you're like, you know, Lysol spray. <laughs> they were untouchables. Leprosy was something that was seen as uncurable by human means. It was something that, that God did in your life or, or was a curse is how people viewed it back then. It was isolating. Lepers were confined to the city limits and many times they lived in the city dump because that was the only place that had been able to find some scraps of food and some clothing and things to wear because people avoided these people like the plague. It's also interesting to note that here it's a healing, but yet the Bible doesn't talk about it in the terms of healing. It uses the word cleansing because it was recognized as something that could only be fixed by God, something that only God could heal. And so it's, it's similar to the sin in our life. 
You know, only God can forgive sin. And often in Scripture, there's this parallel between sin, and you'll see it, for example, in, in leprosy, that there, we get cleansed from our sin. The leper gets cleansed. Lastly, when a leper was healed, he would go to the priest to be pronounced clean before he could re-enter society. And Leviticus, Leviticus 2 has some pretty specific instructions about how somebody who was healed from lep- leprosy would have to proceed before they could be the average guy again and live with people. But this was a mighty demonstration of God's grace. Do you remember when I said that Jesus reached out and touched him? That's not something that somebody did back then. You didn't touch a leper. And what's interesting is the scripture doesn't say that Jesus healed him or cleansed him and then touched him. Notice how scripture says he touched him and he was instantly healed. When you go to the doctor's clinic and the doctors are preparing for surgery, like in a hospital, if any of you work in the medical field, you'll maybe understand this analogy, that you, your hands and your clothing and everything that's unsanitized is considered dirty. And you have to sanitize it. And you go and you scrub your hands and you wear sanitized gloves and your instruments are sanitized. But when your sanitized instrument comes in contact with something that is not sanitized, does the instrument that is sanitized make the thing that's unsanitized clean and cleanse it and make that sanitized? No. That thing is now tainted and needs to be sanitized again, needs to be cleansed, needs to be cleaned. And here we see Jesus touch someone who is unclean. But the result is that Jesus touching something unclean makes the man clean. This was a profound moment because only God can heal sin, can forgive sin, and only God can make somebody clean who is unclean. It's a clear demonstration of God's love and his grace. If you want a little bit more context for this idea of something clean coming in contact with something unclean and becoming unclean itself, you can read Haggai 2. But when Jesus touched the leper, he was doing two things. One, he was actually making a claim to deity. But he was also meeting that man exactly where he was. And that's what he does for us as well. He meets us where we're at. He meets man where he is at. And this is grace. This is grace demonstrated through the life of Jesus, that he doesn't wait for man to clean himself, to get fixed up, to make himself look appropriate before God is willing to to touch him. But it's exactly the opposite. Jesus dives right into the mess of our lives right into our brokenness. And he calls us back to, our, to himself. And he does the restoration work. We don't restore ourselves. He restores us. 
He makes us new. We can put on some polishing, you know, some extra, extra things, but, you know, to try to, I'm doing makeup, I don't know why, I don't wear makeup, clearly. But Jesus calls us back into relationship with himself. Romans 5, 6 to 9, when we were utterly hopeless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed us his great love by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Romans 5, 10 to 11 says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in the wonderful news, new relationship with God, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We're friends of God. And God's grace is absolutely outrageous. There's this story from a book called Proof, Finding Freedom Through the Joy of Irresistible Grace by by Timothy Paul Jones. And I read this at a ministerial a few weeks, this last week, I guess. It wasn't that long ago. But I wanted to read it again today because I feel like it, this story, so beautifully articulates the Father's heart, the Father's heart for us. And it goes like this. I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I, Timothy, am sure that this couple originally had the best of intentions, but unfortunately, they never quite integrated her in with the rest of her children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming this eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter previously family vacationed, <clears throat> sorry, for one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family would vacation, specifically at Disney World, They took their biological children with them and left their adopted daughter at home with a family member or a friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she had done something particularly wrong that precluded her from her presence on that trip. By the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World. She had been heard plentiful stories about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been left on the outside. Once I found out about this story, my heart broke, and I made plans to take our little girl to Disney World. I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences with Disney that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly sized Mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into screaming bundles of emotional instability. But what I didn't expect was the prospect of visiting this dream world and the effect it would have 
on our other on our newest daughter. In fact, it produced a stream of downright devilish behavior in her like we'd never seen. In the month leading up to the trip to the magical kingdom, she stole food when it would have been very simple to request. And the request would have easily given her the snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth, and she whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days of the calendar moved closer and closer to the trip, her mutinies seemed to multiply. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magical kingdom. She had tried and failed several times before, so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage as a parent. The easiest response would have been, you're right. Kid, if you don't buck up, if you don't start behaving yourself, you're right. You're not going to get to go on this trip to Disney World. But instead, by God's grace, I didn't say that. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something that we do as a family? She nodded her, hat. She nodded her head. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong and keep you on the right track, but you are part of our family, and we don't leave family behind. I'd like to say that her behavior grew better after that moment, but it didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control after that moment at every hotel stop, at every rest stop, all the way to Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on that day, as we'd promised, all of our children in tow. It was a typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to maybe even consider going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had finally faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her. I held her and I asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? My little girl closed her eyes, snuggled down, snuffed her face into her stuffed unicorn, and after a few moments, opened her eyes ever so slightly. She looked up at me and said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It's not because I was good. It's because I'm yours. When I was reading this to Rhea, I, I couldn't even say that sentence. I started to break tears, just started rushing to my eyes. This is God's message of outrageous grace. Outrageous grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's a gift you receive by being God's. 
Outrageous grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you even when you have nothing but a middle finger to offer to God in return. It's a farmer paying a full day's wages to a crew of deadbeat laborers who only, <clears throat> with only a single hour punched on their time cards. It's a man marrying an abandoned woman and refusing to forsake his covenant with her when she turns out to be a whore. It's the insanity of a shepherd who puts 99 sheep at risk to rescue a single lamb who's too stupid to stay with the flock. It's the love of a father who hands over his finest rings and robes to a young man who has squandered his inheritance on drunken binges and his fair-weathered friends. It's one-way love that calls you into the kingdom of God, not because you've been good, but because God has chosen you and decided to make you his own. And now he's chasing you, and he's chasing me to the ends of the earth to keep you as his child. And nothing in heaven or on, in hell is going to stop him. God's outrageous grace. To close, the worship team can come on up. To close, I wanted to share Romans eight fifteen to 17 with you. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, but instead you've received God's spirit when he adopted you into his family as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we, in fact, are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. I know most of you in this room. I don't know all of you. But one thing I don't know is what your relationship with our Heavenly Father is like. There are many people who come to God And they come with great intentions and they fall on their face shortly after. Actually, I can tell you it's almost guaranteed. <laughs> what do we do when that happens? Sometimes people get, get beaten up with guilt and condemnation. because they don't know the Father's heart for them. They don't know how much God loves them. When we fall on our face, God's grace is there to pick us back up, to put us on our feet, to restore us with a little hug, and just get us back up on our feet, walking as if we'd never stumbled at all. And that is God's grace. Some of you here maybe have never met God the Father. This morning, if you don't know God the Father and his love for you, I encourage you to come up.
I'd like to pray with you. Because it is so good. I know for me, there's nothing better than Sophia or Everett sitting on my lap and Sophia crawling up on my lap and just wanting to spend time with me. And I know that's God's intention for you as well. He wants you to spend time with him. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. So this morning, if you need a touch from God this morning, come on up. If you need to encounter the Father's love for you this morning, come on up. If you've never received Christ into your life, come on up. I'd love to pray with you and show you. Show you who the Father is. Today after service, we're going to be having connection lunch. And um, if there's a couple people that are able to stay behind after and help me clean up, um, I didn't pre-assign a crew for that. But if you have the time, if you don't have kids and have to run out the door, if you could help me with that. But this morning, we're going to have time to, to connect and to have fellowship out in the, in the foyer there. And we're going to set up tables in here. But before we do that, I just want to open it up this morning. That if you need a touch from God, that you would know that his presence is here and he wants you to know that he loves you and that his love for you is not conditional on your behavior. But it is conditional on you wanting him, you receiving him, you walking in communion with him relationship with him on a daily basis. If, uh, if you feel it on your heart this morning, would you just raise your hands to the heavens, to God? Just together, we'll just say, Lord, thank you that you love me. I thank you that you died for me. Lord, I want to know you. Father, I want to know your heart, your love. Lord, help me to walk rightly. God, help me to choose righteousness. Lord, help me to to walk your way and not my way. Lord, show me this morning if there's root of rebellion in my heart against you. To want to do things my way. Lord, would you restore us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you rain down? We want to know you this morning. Know you in a deeper way, in a more revelatory way than we ever have before, God.
Lord, thank you that I can call you mine. You can call me yours. Abba Father. Daddy. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.